Hello and welcome to the HPP Podcast. I am your host, Arden Castle, and this week's episode comes from our People and Places collection. If you love visuals, I suggest checking out our YouTube channel for the video version of this interview. Enjoy! Hello and welcome. This is Health Promotion Practices author interviews and my name is Arden Castle. Each episode we will explore a recently published article and its author. This week I'm joined by Cynthia Begay, author of Cigarette and E-Cigarette Retail Marketing on and near tribal lands, which was published in January 2020. This episode is focused on her professional career, which is just one part of a three-part series with Cynthia Begay. Tune into our other episodes to hear more about her and our other authors. Without further ado, welcome Cynthia Begay. How are you doing today? And can you introduce yourself? Hi, yeah. So, so, hi everybody. My name is Cynthia Begay. I just introduced myself in our traditional Navajo way. I'm Hopi San Forehead, born for the Mexican people, and my uh, maternal grandfather is Navajo Bitterwater Clan, and I'm currently based on the Tonko Territory, which is currently known as Los Angeles, California. Excellent. Thank you for introducing yourself. And I am recording this out of San Jose, which is based out of Moakmaloni Territory. So you're currently working on your doctorate with an emphasis on health behavior research. Can you tell me a little bit about your educational journey? Sure, yeah. So I'm a third year PhD student at Keck School of Medicine, doing the emphasis in health prevention medicine. Yeah, health prevention medicine. I say preventive sometimes, and it's kind of a funny anomaly because it's really just basically public health. And my educational journey has been a long one. I started at UC San Diego as an undergrad, a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed pre-med student who, you know, that's the only direction I knew in health to help my communities because a lot of my passions in life and the drivers are really focused on my experience growing up and just learning about my mom's experiences. So my mom was born in the Navajo Reservation and raised in the Hopi Reservation, and she came out to California and had me. So I just heard a lot of the stories and the disparities about, you know, seeking health care out there, even a lot of our family members dying at young ages and just all the health complications and just, I guess, health inequities in general that I was learning firsthand. And so I thought, the best way I could address that is being a doctor, maybe going back to my reservation to help. But once I got to UC San Diego, I was really fortunate to be a part of a program called the California Native American Research Center for Health, which is a mouthful, but California NARCH for short. And it's a really awesome program where they take Native students and give them paid opportunities to do research in labs. And so I had been working in the cafeteria at school for two years and then my third year I got to jump into just doing research and focusing on my future career goals so that's where I really got that first step into the research world and had been participating in several different NIH National Institutes of Health research projects including working at Harvard Medical School in the Four Direction Summer Research Program where I was able to get my first publication it was really really a great experience and that was one of the drivers that told me that maybe I was onto something, you know, and I was actually good at this <laughs> and I should continue pursuing it. Definitely. And it sounds like you were no stranger to public health, even from the beginning. And as you became more and more involved with these different opportunities, 
I'm curious, was there anything in particular, any pivotal moments in your life that inspired you to become a researcher or really drew you to the public health field specifically? I know you mentioned coming at it from maybe like a medical perspective, but then what, how did you end up in public health? Yeah, so I think one of the pivotal moments for research in general uh, was doing the Four Directions Research Program. I think at that time, especially with UC San Diego being a hard sciences type school, you know, they want you to do more bench work science and things like that. So at least I was kind of getting introduced in the world of research. But when it came to public health, I think the bridge for me was looking at community-based participatory research. And I started doing a lot of that after I graduated from undergrad. And I got to work in North County, San Diego with the tribal communities up there on opioid disposal projects, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder projects. And I think through that, I really saw a lens of, you know, I can help my community. I can help improve these health inequities that I thought I was only able to do as a medical doctor and really look at it from a public health standpoint. So I think that public health journey really happened between my undergrad and my master's program, which I ended up going back to school to get a master's of public health and epidemiology. And so, I mean, from there, there was really no turning back. And I'm really happy and I pursued the master's because I was at a crossroads, still trying to decide if I wanted to go to medical school or look at the research side. But yeah, I was really just working with the people on the ground and seeing that direct impact that really fueled my interest and passion for public health. Yeah, definitely. And it sounds like you had become involved and then wanted to kind of see the other side and taking on more of the researcher perspective. You talk about bringing this information back to your community. I'm curious, you identify as an urban American Indian. How has your identity shaped the way that you interact with public health, either as a researcher or just how your identity interacts with the field in general? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think one thing that a lot of folks don't really, if they are paying attention to American Indian and Alaska Native communities, sometimes we get kind of lumped as one type of culture, you know, very homogenous, and that's not true. So we do want to recognize there's over 500 federally recognized tribes. I mean, here in California, we have 109 and, you know, over 70 who are petitioning to get recognized. But even further into that, yeah, the intersection of being from the reservation or being urban, you know, kind of how I mentioned my mom's experiences growing up are much different than mine and so I definitely carry that into the work now so being here based in California working with tribes that I'm not a part of these tribal communities in terms of being a tribal member and so it is really important for me to when I do that work with those tribal communities that you know yes I am Native American but also folks from their own tribal communities really know their own solutions. And so even as a Native researcher going into other Native communities, it's really important for me to put those folks at the the front and center. When I work with tribal communities throughout California, we make sure that we're putting California Natives, you know, Native people who are from California, their tribal lands are here, we put them at the forefront. And so I think that's kind of like a different angle, at least personally, that I take in my, my work as being an urban Native researcher. But here in LA, it is, It is good because I think with 70% of us or probably even more at this point living in major urban cities and off the reservation, it it is very important to represent that demographic. Here in Los Angeles, being a researcher and sitting on different boards, constantly saying we do have a Native population here 
you know, and not just folks who are, you know, from the Tongva territory and things like that, you know, we're, we're made up of many nations here in Los Angeles. And there's a large history to that as well with the relocation project. And strategically, we were created by the government to become urban at some point. So it's just also recognizing those histories too in my work and um, really trying to, trying to get a seat at the table and advocate for our communities back home on tribal lands and also here in major cities. I like it. There's, there's so many different moving pieces in your view of public health. And I love that thinking about the history aspect and the value of this community knowledge and this community wealth and how do we advocate, not just acknowledging those disparities, but moving forward and trying to help them. They know their solutions, trying to get those solutions into reality. I'm curious what advice you would give a young professional entering the field and what maybe you would tell a young BIPOC professional and BIPOC meaning Black, Indigenous, person of color who's entering the field? Yeah, I think I do a lot of reflection on just kind of how I got here because sometimes it feels like we're, you know, kind of how we were talking earlier before we started the interview. It's like we're so inundated with what's here right in front of me? What do I need to get done? And as I keep on to the next thing, on to the next thing. And that's just honestly what it's felt like to even get to this point and getting in the PhD program. But sometimes I do have to sit back and reflect like, wow, what a journey that was. What did it take for me to get there? And how many moments in that journey did I think I wasn't going to make it, you know, or did I, I didn't think I was cut out for it. And so I think for, you know, those young BIPOC students that are up and coming and really want these things, I think it is very possible. And I think for me, it was very important to find people who are like me. I think not only culturally like me, but also maybe struggled like I did. I excelled in, in public education in high school and, you know, how they always say you're, you're a top dog at your old high school and you're going to college and you're just a, a small fish in a small pond. So I think that I kind of had that issue at UCSD and I really didn't do that well as much as I tried. I, I, I didn't have a very strong GPA when I came out of that program. And so for me, that was my biggest fear going on to the next step is I just feel like I'm reduced to a GPA. What do I do next? And so for those students who may be in that same boat, that's not, that's not the case. I think, especially acknowledging that equity piece, like what did it take for another student to get their good GPA or get to that college? And what did it take you to get there? And so recognizing and honoring that is really important. And also just understanding that there's other ways to kind of measure success. There's not one way. And so for me, it was really important to not only just jump in and do the work and work with my community, but also show the graduate school programs that I am capable. Maybe I didn't get an AM organic chemistry class, but I ran this policy system and environmental grant that implemented change in San Diego for my community. You know, <laughs> knowing that piece and seeing that at least my own success in getting into the master's program and then ultimately into this PhD program was uh, really important, but that wasn't just on my own back. I had so many mentors along the way, so many enrichment programs, and really a lot of these programs I participated in, I've been able to build a network of Native and BIPOC students who are going through the same journey, who are now becoming doctors and maybe are in PhD programs just like I am, and it's really awesome to have that network, but really just if you have that barrier, that you know, fork in the road, you just push through it and find things that help validate your experience so that way you can keep moving forward. But there's, there's not one way to the end point. There's not one way to measure success. And yeah, that's just been really, really important for me to, to never quit. And I had a mentor actually, and I, this is the best piece of advice I also hand off to other people is 
there were times when I would apply to programs or I wouldn't even want to apply because I'm like, oh, I'm not cut out. Like it's a 3.0 GPA to get in and I have a 2.9. Like they're never going to look at my application. And I had one mentor tell me, what's the worst they can say is no. So don't tell yourself no before they can. And so that particular program it was a really awesome program called the Minority Access to Research Careers Mark Scholarship. And it was a two-year full-ride scholarship for my undergrad. They paid you a stipend. They paid for summer experiences. And that was a program I actually thought, oh, they're not going to pick me. And they only picked like eight people in a cohort and hundreds were applying. And she told me that. I applied. And I got picked and notified before they finished creating the cohort. You know, and just to think, had I not applied because I didn't think I was cut out for it because of this one GPA thing, I really carried that moment with me. And so even now, you know, I still have moments of I'm applying for my F31. I'm like, oh, there's thousands of people applying now. <laughs> you know, should I even be applying? But of course I'm going to, but it just kind of having to continue to remind myself of those things along the way. I love that. And as you said at the beginning, before we were even recording, we were talking about feeling overwhelmed and feeling like you're just balancing so many things and you forget to turn around and, and acknowledge what you've worked so hard on. And I think that that's totally right, just finding ways to validate the work that you're doing and to never say no before the opportunity does. I think that that's, that's an excellent piece of advice. All right, well, as we're wrapping up, is there any other little tidbits that you'd like to share or anything that you'd like to say about yourself before we go into our lightning round? Oh, I guess I'm just really happy that you all are doing this platform. I think it's it's really great. One of the things that my mentor, Dr. Claridina Soto, and I have been working on are a series of report facts. And so not all the time is it that our communities that we're doing this research for actually have subscriptions to these peer-reviewed journals. And so we're doing these series of report facts of the larger projects we're doing just to let the community have access to these resources. And we're not bound by writing it in such technical sciencey language and more importantly, just free access to these folks. So I really like that you guys are approaching these articles too at a different angle as well. So folks can listen in. So really appreciative of the work that you all are doing behind the scenes. <laughs> Well, thank you. The goal is always to get the knowledge out to the folks because there shouldn't be any reason why they can't have access to it. And I'm excited for your project as well. All right, we're going to get into the lightning round. So let's see. Our first question is, if you could learn any language, what would it be? Well, I would start off with my native languages. So, you know, I did do my introduction in the beginning, but I probably only know a handful of words outside of that. And then also my other tribal language, Hopi. And I think third is to get better at Spanish because <laughs> I am half Chicana and, and my dad's fluent in Spanish. And so I'm like, oh, I should really be learning all my culture languages. And then let's see, what is your favorite season? My favorite season probably is fall. And I'm very biased because it's my birthday season. <laughs> I really like, you know, I guess for me, since I have been an academic my whole life, it, the real new year starts with the school year and that's in the fall. And then it is just kind of leading up to the holidays and the cooler weather. I was born and raised in Bakersfield and so it's very, very hot. And so you just kind of get into fall season where it gets cooler and you're so happy for that reprieve from the 110 degree weather you had all summer. So yeah, fall is my favorite right now. <laughs> I caught you at the perfect time of the year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's see. What is your favorite food? 
Ooh, my favorite food is traditional Hopi food. So we have ceremony every summer. We call them kachina dances. And it's just a really nice time where everyone gathers in the village. We watch the dances from sunup to sundown. And we serve a hominy stew. If you've ever had pozole, it kind of looks like that. It's called nakwabi, and it's made with sheep. So fresh butchered sheep with a little hominy in it. And you can dip it with your Hopi bread. So they look kind of like dinner rolls. And it's just everybody makes all the traditional food. So we have piki, which is a blue cornmeal, very thin papery bread that's kind of rolled up like a burrito shape. And it's very crunchy. We have some mibiki, which look like they're tiny little like tamales, but uh, with blue cornmeal and they're sweet. And so I guess summer is like a close second, even though it's very hot, because that's the time I get to go back home and experience ceremony. But more importantly, I get to eat all these yummy foods from my tribe that I can't go out here in LA and go find a bowl of nakwabi anywhere. It has to be back home. <laughs> that sounds really good. And I think it's, it's so awesome that you still get to go back home and enjoy those things. Yeah, it <laughs> sounds really good. <laughs> <Enjoy>. <laughs> Let's see, if you could have any other career than what you do now, what would it be? Oh, that's such a hard one. I think, well, I have been reading a lot online and how people are reshaping, like, what does it mean to have a career or like a quote unquote dream job? And I think I always struggle with that question when folks ask, I'm like, what do you want to do after your PhD or what do you want to do? You know, what's your dream job? And I always think of like a dream impact, like, how do I want to impact my community? What tools do I want to bring back to my community? And especially, you know, with our generation, there's so many different ways to have a job. You can be contracted, you can do the traditional career route, things like that. And so I do really love what I do now. And I think whatever alternative career path I would take, it would still always link back to impacting my community. So I think if I maybe have an alternative life, <laughs> probably do art. I um, I currently I have a small business, but it's Hopi Girl Silver and I make traditional Hopi overlay jewelry. While I didn't make this piece, this is the style that I make it in, but you know, this is someone else's work. And so that would be really nice to do full time. And I have been taking a pause in it for the past couple of years because of school, but I really do enjoy the power of art, the power to share your story through your art and just just a community that I, that's kind of been created out of me working on my silver pieces and stuff. I love that because I think that we tend to think so academic with things that you know even public health can be not as like sciencey as other sciences in, in some people's eyes. I, I like that you're you're highlighting art and I think that yeah there's so much value and strength in that but it's sad that you have to take a break from that but we're early in our careers so there's definitely time to get back to it. Yes definitely. <laughs> And then our last question, what is something that you read for fun and really enjoyed recently? Okay, so I didn't actually read it. I would listen to an audiobook. I hope that counts because I kind of do have this running joke. Like I don't like to read, even though I read all day, every day, because it's for school, articles, work. I've just never been one of those who can like curl up with a good book. <laughs> but recently I was taking a road trip with my boyfriend and we listened to Michelle Obama's Becoming. And we watched the Netflix thing first, you know, and it was really getting like a teaser, getting ready for the book. And that book was so awesome. I really just, just enjoyed her being very candid about her journey. And it was just a very empowering book about 
you know, also her own reflection. I think that's what I, what really resonated with me too. It's like, you know, you just blink and you're in one spot already. And, and that was her whole book on just taking a reflection on how far they had come, you know, and not only herself, but as a team with her family. And of course, helping her husband run and win for office. So I really just, I really enjoyed that. And I really like how even people in her status, you know, her people with her platform still also need that kind of moment to reflect to and look back. And just seems too that she's open to learning as well, that she doesn't have all the answers and she's still also evolving herself. So that was really nice listen, I guess. <laughs> Excellent. I'll have to, I'll have to listen to it. I think you might be like the third person who's who said that this book was recently impacting their life. And so between, you know how it is, as a student with all my free time, I'll have to go ahead and, and listen to that or give it a read. But... Mm -hmm. Definitely on a road trip, you can uh, audiobook it. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you all for listening in. If you'd like to find out more about our guest this week, you can reach her here. And as always, follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook for more author interviews. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode from the HPP podcast. If you enjoyed this content, let us know. You can find more from us on our website, social media, Sophie, and Sage. And you can find all of these links in the podcast description. Take care.